It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. We are knee deep in season 13, and we're talking various awards categories from various decades, looking at the nominees from each. We're currently working through the films nominated for the 1965 BAFTA's Best Film from Any Source. Those are Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, No Relation, and The Train. There's also Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, but we talked about that in a previous season. It was Andy's pick from our Vacation Challenge series back in Season 5, to be precise. Like we did earlier this season when we rebroadcast previous conversations that were part of our 1940 Academy Award Best Picture series, we wanted to bring this one back as well. So enjoy this blast from the past, streamlined to focus just on the film itself. Thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention. We hope you enjoy the show. Let's tell the people where we're from. Where are we from? This is the 
the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey! And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the second in our 2016 Vacation Challenge with Stanley Kubrick's 1964 end-of-the-world satire, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. I don't know, Andy. You're going to have to answer to the Coca-Cola company. Blast off! Where's my shorts? Where's the bathroom? Buck, should I get it? On the hotline. Dr. Strangelove. Or, how I learned to stop worrying and... Love the bomb. A moving <laughs> picture. Dr. Strangelove, Andrew. How I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. Uh, this is Stanley Kubrick from 1964. And this was your pick for our vacation challenge. Why was that? You tasked me with finding something that, or actually particularly picking my favorite end of the world, uh, dystopian future, uh, post-apocalyptic comedy. And so... This is a little cheat. It it is, but you know it is about the end of the world. It's it's you would classify this maybe as a pre pre apocalyptic. Yeah, but end it of the is world if, comedy. But if you're calling it an end of the world comedy, I mean, it, you know, it is a comedy about the end of the world. I think it fits. It's not. Uh, I mean, this is about you know, it's a it's a comedy about how the world ends. I guess it's <laughs> a it's not, a process yeah. piece. <laughs> Well, I I think it's absolutely it absolutely fits. And uh, why, tell me, uh, give me your your initial uh, feedback here. How did you uh, how did this hit for you? This is a film that my uh, second year film uh, film production teacher showed us in film class. Uh, you know, because you know every now and then they do that when you're in production. They they'll stop class and just watch something, and that was kind of fun. And this was one of those movies where I don't think anybody in the class really got it. <laughs> but the, but my professor was just sitting in the back, just snickering through the whole thing. And I, you know, and, and it's one of those movies that I watched. I was like, well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, it, it was kind of funny. It was weird the way it ended. Like I didn't, I didn't click with it at first. How long did it take to click for you? Like, and, and I mean, on the scale of years. It, it really wasn't that many. I, I think that um, within the next couple of years of film school, um, you know, my, my senior thesis project was on Kubrick. I had really kind of gone back and studied every one of his films uh, for that particular project. And I, I think in the process of all of that, uh, I started kind of getting it. And I and well, and plus, you know, when you're hanging out with film students, you know, you're always trying to be erudite and talking about really hoity-toity things yeah. in film. And I know that there was somebody that I was talking with who I worked with who was into film and this, you know, he would always say, oh, you've got to rewatch this and look at this and check this out and watch this. And so I, I rented it and watched it again. And I think it, it took a few times for me to really click with the comedy in this film before I really was getting it and before I was finding so much of the humor in it. And now, um, I mean, it it was pretty short after that where I, it was something that I really enjoyed. Now I watch it again and I just honestly, I feel like my film professor now just like snickering in the back of the room yeah. because I, I can't stop laughing when I watch this. It's like every single thing is so funny. And I, I just feel that in the process of trying to uh, make a film about his own personal fears of 
of kind of nuclear holocaust and the state of the world at the time, I think Kubrick really found the right way to tell the story. And, and his, his decision to go satire rather than serious, I think ended up allowing him to, um, to make something that poked fun at it in a way that I think made it more, uh, impactful. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, now I just watch this film and I think it's so funny and so biting. And I, I think what's interesting is to kind of reflect on this film and think and put it in context of the time when it came out in early 64, when the Cold War was not something people laughed at. It was a very serious thing. And the fact that this movie was out there that was just like, it was this, this comedic, um, joke about, about what nuclear holocaust was um i mean i think that it was just so so brave and so ahead of his time to actually make something like this um it, it's like somebody now making a film about i mean and, and i really mean no disrespect but making a a satire on like the state of the u.s and its policies on gun control you know it's it's that sort of thing where it would be really i think there would be a lot of eyes raised um, about uh, if somebody did something like that. Well, it's like Fritz Lang and, and making, you know, Manhunt in 1940s. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's, right. it is a very similar thing. Those, the dealing with very, uh, high Correct. energy contemporary issues, cultural issues, yeah. uh, and doing with it. And, and, you know, what's what I find so interesting about this, I, I didn't know that it was originally intended to be a serious film. I didn't know that Kubrick had become absolutely obsessed with nuclear armament and had been digesting these you know books about the darkest darkest trouble that comes with nuclear weaponry i i didn't know any of that i didn't know that the original film was titled the delicate balance of terror which i wouldn't have wanted to see <laughs> that sounds uh, terrible it sounds just awful uh, but uh you know i heard this this uh, a quote from one of his contemporaries who who was working with him on the film and said uh you know we we kept going back and forth saying you know if you find out that the bomb has been dropped and you're in an office the film's a documentary if you find out the bomb's been dropped and you're in a living room then it's a drama but if you find out that the bomb's been dropped and you're in a bathroom it's a comedy and they went with that and i think that was an absolutely brilliant brilliant choice and and uh it was just perfect i haven't seen the movie in years and years and years uh and uh, you know i think i had made the turn uh that it was funny by the time I'd last seen it, I remember it as a funny movie. I don't remember it as this funny. I don't remember Peter Siller, Sellers, straight man president, as being as absolutely drop dead funny uh, as he was uh, in this film. I didn't remember uh, uh, the G George C. Scott being as insanely funny as he was in this film. It's so much of it uh, just had me rolling. Uh, it was a, a great pick and. Yes, the world ends, thus you win. <laughs> and it's just so, it's one of those movies that you, you keep picking up on things yes. as you watch it over and over again. And I mean, I read uh, Roger Ebert's review before I watched it, um, again, in his uh, great movies series of reviews. And he really kind of fixated on George C. Scott's face. And so I ended up fixating on George C. Scott's face as I watched it. And he is not wrong in any way at all. George C. Scott was like his 
what he is doing and how he reacts and every little thing that he's doing with his face is just so flippin' funny. Just every little move. And I know that, uh, you know, he had done, he was trying to do a little more serious. And I, the way that, uh, that I heard it is that, um, he would do a couple serious takes and then Kubrick would say, okay, now do one really over the top. Uh, just, you know, just let's play around with it. And Kubrick ended up using all the takes that were really over the top. And I guess that uh, I don't think that Scott was necessarily thrilled that he made made (laughs) him look so buffoonish. But in context of the film, I think that's exactly what the film needed. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, I'd like to think that George C. Scott has some hindsight that uh, the way he portrayed the the character quite naturally as a, a child essentially as a stubborn stewing spoiled child uh I, I think ends up making the film that much better I, I i was disappointed to learn that he was frustrated with kubrick but i also know that kubrick's a tough guy to work with yeah and, and as is scott and you know he um kubrick had to really kind of in order to kind of gain scott's respect in the as they began this process um, had to figure out a way to kind of get that respect from Scott. And so he pulled out his chessboard. Anybody who knows anything about Kubrick, he was a master chessman. I mean, he just always was playing chess. And so he and Scott were always playing chess when they had uh, time to do so. It kind of had a board set up. And Kubrick won almost every single time. And so that actually kind of helped Scott kind of gain his respect and start kind of, uh, you know, really tuning in to what Kubrick was saying and, and wanting him to do. As a uh, as the the Kubrick historian here, apparently, uh, do you want to uh, walk people through who, for those who haven't seen the film in some time, uh, the just the general uh, uh, stream of events that make this film uh, what it is? Yeah, um, sure. Uh, General Jack D. Ripper, uh, fantastically played by um, Sterling Hayden. Um, he uh he sends out a code which is a uh, the code for plan r to uh to his uh his all of his air force planes that are flying they're all in the safe zone just 2 hours outside their strike zones in russia he sends this this code out which basically says hey the us has been attacked drop your bombs and uh, you know let's get world war 3 started and um so we focus on one plane headed up by uh, Kong, and Kong, who is uh, played by Slim Pickens, Major Kong, he um, he takes his plane and, and heads to do exactly what he is told. Uh, meanwhile, the president and all of his people uh, find out that this plan has been uh, taken by uh, by Ripper, and so they one try to stop Ripper, and two try to stop these planes. And I guess you could just say hilarity ensues on all ends. And, and because of, uh, you know, things that happen uh, in the plane, they end up, this particular plane ends up not getting called back. And uh, in the end, starting World War Three. The uh, the film very is uh, if you can't tell it's very much Cold War satire. It is uh, it it is funny and dark, uh, really grim. It is all about sex. This movie it is all about the sex. <laughs> it is it connects war and sex in ways that very few films can do successfully. From just the giant guns, the way the the, 
way Sterling Hayden uh, holds his giant gun uh, to the aerial refueling scenes of this B-52 and the music that is played, the the absolute uh, uh, sex symphony that is played when the planes are flying and refueling <laughs> uh, to Sterling Hayden's whole mentality or his whole mission is to stop the uh the russians from you know cultivating from fluoridating our water uh to to poison our precious bodily fluids over and over with the precious bodily fluids all of these things uh end up uh, you know connecting war and sex and ego and id in in ways that just make for a really funny uh, experience uh, not was, to mention that there is a a you know essentially the doomsday device is triggered by what you could call a nuclear orgasm yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> slim pickens uh riding it all the way as they say <laughs> uh the it's a it's a fascinating thing and this film was so impactful it was so powerful in fact it, in the cultural gestalt of the time that when reagan was elected he asked to see the war room sure that the war room existed because he saw it in dr strangelove in fact it did not it is just brilliant um yeah it's stanley kubrick wrote this he he bought the rights for the book based um it was peter george's book who actually wrote it under the pseudonym peter bryant um, Kubrick read it and bought the rights to the book. He thought that Terry Southern, who had just written a book called Candy, would be a perfect person to bring on board because that film, I guess, I, I didn't look it up at all to, to get any research on it, but I, my understanding is it was rather kind of, uh, I, I guess it was kind of a Lolita type of book for the time. And so Kubrick thought that, that would be a perfect person to bring on to kind of help write this. So between the two of them, along with Peter George, they kind of wrote this script. And, uh, you know, I think that Kubrick had said something like, what's the most outrageous thing a person can say while still seeming credible? And that was kind of the the motivation that they had once they decided to go with the satire route. Everything from just the scope of the these different parts of the story as they all kind of work together to tr- try to stop this bomb or try to keep it from ha- or try to keep it happening like uh, like um, Ripper is doing. Uh, also, there's these little moments like the reveal that uh, when Turgeson gets the phone call and he's, you know, he has his uh, secretary, uh, Miss Scott, in, uh, you know, kind of sitting there in bed and they're they're chatting. And I don't know, it's just there's something really funny about the fact that they're having this conversation. And then they reveal later that it's 3 a.m. And they're just like wide awake. And it just seems like it's, you know, 5 p.m. It's just it's it's really interesting. It's just a small little thing. But it's just like. I don't know why I found it so interesting that that was like it was a 3 a.m. phone call and here they are just kind of doing their thing. Like, what did they just finish in this room? You know, (laughs) well, once again, I think we know what they just finished. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it is. It's really beautiful, and and the uh, the level of just sort of production sarcasm uh, that that the military slogan is "peace is our profession" is on these signs everywhere right. uh, ends up being just again really sadistically uh, delightful reveals. Uh, Kubrick is a director. Um, how do you think this film represents his work? But frankly, uh, I I don't know that I've laughed at many other Kubrick films. I don't know if he's really tried to make any many other films that you laugh at. I mean, there might be some moments in like Full Metal Jacket in the training where, you know, there are some funny elements. But yeah, I mean, he's he's kind of done a bunch of genres, uh, you know, the heist film, this, the horror, the war, uh, the the space opera. You know, I, I don't think he's done much more in the way of comedy. I 
wish kind of that he did because I think that this is just almost a perfect comedy. It's so funny. Um, but you definitely do see stuff of Kubrick in here. His crash zooms that he's always kind of loved, even all the way up through um, Eyes Wide Shut. He still was using those. And, you know, most people considered zooms out of fashion, but somehow Kubrick did it in a way that still seemed uh, like it fit. Um, I, I didn't see any, he, you know, starting with kind of 2001, he really got that um, idea where he would center something in the shot and it would be kind of your center of focus. And it was like perfectly framed in a way that it was, it was uh, just, you know, everything about it was just a, you know, a mirror of itself. It was beautiful frames. Um, he doesn't do that so much here or kind of in, in his earlier films that I recall. Um, although I, I think you could say that maybe in the war room, like the wide shots when you're kind of looking over the table, that might be it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there definitely are moments that feel very Kubrickian here. Uh, and obviously, I mean, I think that his just kind of dark, dark take on the world, I think, comes across pretty nicely. You know, what's the most Kubrickian about this whole experience is the trailer of this film, which is mm. absolutely out of character from the experience of watching the film. I find that a riot. Did you Have you watched the trailer recently? The, I haven't watched it recently, but I know that he had Pablo Ferro do the trailers and all the TV spots, and Pablo yes. Ferro did the title design, and uh, it has that um, very much that same feel. Um, I saw clips of it, and I uh, there's something about that style that I think... Um, you know, it really makes it stand out. I'd love to see somebody do a trailer like that nowadays. Oh yeah, well, it, you know, one of the it, it's a terrible trailer. Well, we, by by the time we're talking about this, the trailer will have already played, or at least a part of it, on this very show. And it's a terrible trailer for podcasts because <laughs> it 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 it, uh, it actually uh, intercuts uh, very fast cuts of of sequences from the film with titles. That are it, they're like posing questions. What would happen if the if the bomb dropped? And then it cuts to uh, just a, like a one-word response from somebody in the cast, like uh, the president saying, oh, right, right. something like that. And, it, and so it, it feels really just sort of staccato, very Kubrickian to me. I mean, it really is, is kind of emotionally engaging and kind of frightening uh, and not very funny. Um, uh, overall, it's more sort of um, uh, sensor sensorily offensive, um, but uh, but a, a pretty powerful t uh, trailer experience. I, yeah, I'm you almost want to watch it rather than just listen to it. Yeah, you really do. So you know, hit the link and go go actually watch it because it's not it doesn't do justice to how cool it was cut together. First shot, last shot. The first shot of this film is uh, a, just really kind of a cloudy fog shrouding the black mountaintops of Zokov Islands in the uh, below the Arctic peaks uh, of the Zokov Islands, um, at where, as we learn from the voiceover that accompanies it, this is where the Russians have built their doomsday device. So we get this great first shot of just kind of this, uh, you know, an aerial shot as we look at this, uh, the mountaintops uh, surrounded by fog. And then, of course, the last shot is really just, you know, a whole series of nuclear explosions as the world is destroyed. Um, I think it sets up kind of the doomsday device uh, pretty effectively. And I think what's nice about that first shot is it's so um, not connected. It feels so disconnected to the world. You know, it's just the, it's clouds and a, and a mountaintop poking out. So you really don't ever feel um, like, it, it, I don't know, I guess it just kind of ends up creating this this disconnected mystery of it. 
Yeah, I think so. And and it's uh it, it ends up being just a really kind of beautiful sandwich of of doom uh and uh, and and done in such a way that sort of celebrates the journey that you go on through this film that it starts in in kind of a the shrouding black mountain but it's very it's sort of natural uh and then it ends with all of these things just being destroyed. I think it's a a fancy um a fancy way to say you you know you're done for. It ends with Dooms, Doomsday. And um, yeah, it, it's interesting because we don't learn about the Doomsday de- device till midway through um, in the context of the film. It's only right. because it's been set up for us at the beginning. So in a sense, we are kind of like ahead of all these Americans. We know that it exists uh, before they do. The one thing I found really uh, amusing is that the last shot <laughs> could have been uh, this massive cream pie fight in the war room. And I wouldn't have believed it had you just told me that, had I not seen stills of them shooting this sequence. A giant cream pie fight um, and uh, that, that ended up being cut because it was the cast was laughing too hard. That's the word I understand. And, and yeah, that it, it was just too straight up funny. I think that Kubrick intended on it essentially being kind of a, 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 a mini- nuclear armageddon right a metaphor for what's going on outside exactly but unfortunately the actors couldn't stop laughing kubrick's whole design with this was that nobody would be laughing they would all be doing it a hundred percent seriously as if they're really fighting a war with these pies unfortunately everybody just laughing too much because i mean yeah they're getting pie in the face right right bridge too far on the on the you know the straight man trope Yes. Uh, I did, you know, we didn't mention the disclaimer at the beginning of the film. Right. Uh, which I think is uh, is also, I don't know, for me, it sets up the comedy, which is, I don't know if it was serious, right? The, the disclaimer says uh, something to the effect of it's the stated position of the Air Force that uh, that their safeguards would prevent the occurrence of such events as are, they're depicted in this film. Is that roughly it? Uh, yeah, it says, um, it is the stated position of the U.S. Air Force that their safeguards would prevent the occurrence of such events as are depicted in this film. Furthermore, it should be noted that none of the characters portrayed in the film are meant to ex- represent any real persons, living or dead. It made me wonder when I saw that, um, because we have that, I mean, not quite the first part, but certainly the last part, at the end of films now. Yes. I haven't done any research on, on like when it started, but watching this at the beginning of the film made me wonder if this kind of kicked that off. It's, you know, it, it really is. It comes off to me once you see the film, it, like they can't be serious. Well, I mean, the Air Force said, you know, there is no way that this could ever happen. We have too many things in place that would never allow this to actually be the case. Now we know that is not true. We know, and, and I guess this kind of goes to that whole plan R. There really were things like this that could have gone drastically wrong and really ended up just like this film film ends. Un, uh, luckily, it never actually happened. But yeah, they had these things set up where you know if the president isn't around um, or the or, you know, they can't reach him, that somebody else can can you know start the war, set the bombs off, and all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. They had all these things out there. Um, at the time, nobody was saying it, but now it's it's we know that, and so. It puts it in a different context now because now we know the Air Force was lying about <laughs> saying that. Gallows and, humor. Gallows yeah, humor. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's very dark. Uh, Peter Sellers is uh, noted in this film because he's he, once again playing multiple characters. That's kind of his shtick by now. Well, and certainly, I mean, he had just done it with uh, Kubrick right before this um, with Lolita. Right. Where, where he uh, did play 
um, uh, Quilty. He plays Quilty, but Quilty kind of, it's almost like Quilty disguises himself as other people. Or not as other people, but but there are points where you have Peter Sellers in the film, but you're not supposed to realize that it's Claire Quilty. Mm-hmm. At least Humbert Humbert doesn't realize that it's right. Claire Quilty. Right. Uh, so he comes back uh, to work with um, to work with Kubrick again in this film, playing what was originally targeted to be four characters. Uh, he ended up playing three: President Merkin Muffley, Group Captain Lionel Mandrake, and Doctor Strangelove. Uh, what's your, what is the significance before we look at each of these characters? President of the United States, President Merkin Muffley, group Captain Lionel Mandrake, he's the XO of, uh, of. Well, he's the RAF officer. He's right. like a, it's on like an exchange He's program. like the liaison, right, right. He works with, um, with, uh, with Ripper. Ripper. And, uh, Dr. Strangelove is the, uh, we believe the, uh, Operation Paperclip recruit, the former Nazi who was recruited by the OSS uh, to uh, after the war uh, for his scientific expertise to work for the U.S. military. Yeah, I don't know if there's significance in what they chose for him other than uh, those were some pretty great roles, pretty good opportunities for sellers to kind of lend his comedic stylings. Um, he was also supposed to play Major Kong, um, and, uh, that didn't work out. He was, um, I, I, what I heard is that he just, he had a hard time getting the Southern accent and he kind of felt like he was already in it too much. And, um, and then he and Kubrick were in a fight and he fell, he was on the B-52 set and fell off and broke his leg. And which is kind of why Strangelove ended up uh, in a wheelchair is, is my understanding. <laughs> no, mine too. I, I think that is actually brilliant because what is what uh, what I heard is that not only he had an, a, an extreme difficulty getting the the uh, uh, getting the accent right, the Southern drawl of Kong, but he did get it and he got it yeah. to everybody's satisfaction and he sounded fantastic. And then he got in a fight and fell fifteen feet off the set to break his leg. Which is, you know, that that is literally adding injury to insult. <laughs> right. It's just horrible. <laughs> it's just awful. It is horrible. I, I really am glad he didn't end up playing Kong, though. I mean, it would be interesting to see, but maybe it's just in, in retrospect. I think that uh, Slim Pickens, you know, casting somebody who is so perfectly just already the cowboy um, was so great. I mean, Kubrick actually said, you know, I couldn't replace – sellers with any other actor it had to be with a real person and slim ended up being that real person i mean he was that cowboy when he came walking onto the set in england all the brits were like oh well he already got his costume and everything without realizing that no that's just how slim pickens dresses (laughs) he just uh, looks that way almost as if he just got off his horse out in their parking lot um but uh, yeah i mean peter sellers and we've talked about him before on being there which is just a brilliant brilliant film and he's done a lot of just great roles. Um, not always great films, but certainly great roles. I, there's such a great blend of these characters. I mean, Merkin Muffley uh, was supposed to be funny initially, um, but, but everybody was laughing too much. And so they kind of toned it down and went serious, which I think was really smart. I think that the way Merkin Muffley is now is just perfect. And his conversation, which is almost all improv, when he has the 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 one-sided conversation with uh with uh Dimitri over in Russia is just one of the funniest things and i could just listen to that on repeat because it's just like a perfect perfect conversation it's so good 
I I can too. And it was it, you know this the level of improvisation that he uh, that he undertook for this film. Uh, you know, it just about every scene he would read the first line from the script, and then he would just go. And Kubrick just let him go, and it created a lot of this retro scripting, right? Where they went back and they re they transcribed everything that he said to put it in the in the script for uh, for lore and for editing, and and um, uh, it, it ended up just being perfect. The the symbolism of the names, <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, they all have some sort of a symbol, and maybe I read too far into some of them. But President Merkin Muffley is not even much of a symbol. It's just you know Merkin, uh, the the pubic wig the uh, the the alliteration or the uh, allusion to um to sex and sexuality uh, sort of begins in the highest office i guess right um, and uh, and that's it so uh, you, you the the character is uh, well you're right it was initially played as funny uh, he ended up being modeled after um adlai stevenson uh, and you can really see it in his conversations around the giant table um, as as just the complete stoic. He, when he's not funny, he comes off as a true politician, and it ends up being a, a really terrific part. Uh, Lionel Mandrake, I couldn't I couldn't figure out that much. Mandrake uh, from the Old English, man plus dragon it was Drake. It was dragon in Old English. I, that's pretty much as far as I got. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I know it's a plant or a root. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know. Other than that, it's I, a nightshade. Yeah, night, I, yeah, I don't know too much else about it, but um, I, I didn't look into that too much. But it's um, I, I like this particular character, and something that really kind of stuck out for me this time on this watch was just watching Mandrake's face as he kind of has this realization that Ripper has gone mad. And you get to kind of watch him as he kind of puts two and two together as he's talking to him and realizes like. Uh, I gotta figure out what I'm gonna do here because this guy's <laughs> clearly off his rocker. Uh, it's just so good and it's just brilliant to see kind of how he plays that. It's so interesting to watch how he plays these three characters. They're so different. And I mean, Strange Love, of course, whose real name, and I don't know if this is the first time I've caught her, this is the first time that I've really paid attention, but as they reveal in the film, his real name is, is Merkverdgliebe. <laughs> Which, which I believe literally translates to strange love. Does it? Yes. Oh, that's so funny. A kraut by any other name. <laughs> <laughs> there are some really good ones. The, the, his responses to as Mandrake to some of Ripper's comments are fantastic. Mandrake, have you ever seen a commie drink a glass of water? <laughs> well, uh, no, no, sir. I can't say that I have. <laughs> <laughs> I consider myself a real water man. <laughs> It's like a, this a string in my leg. It's, it's just gone. <laughs> Whatever he's saying, and I know that that whole string bit. He yeah. had no intention of actually saying it, but <laughs> but ended up saying it. And he and Kubrick were trying so hard not to laugh, but it worked so well that they kept it in there. And oh, it's just so funny. It is just perfect, and uh, you know, equally perfect. The strange love, who ironically is not in the film all that often. No, he kind of pops up weirdly, like midway through, when when the president calls for him, and he just happens to be sitting there. 
<laughs> Which in it, in and of itself, I think is really funny. The fact that Strange Love just happens to be there, and the the introduction is so abrupt. Yes, it really is. And and then some of the most dramatic shots of any single character in the film are of the you know fifteen minutes of total screen time that that uh, Strange Love gets, if that. Yeah, if that, right? Um, it, but he's he like the the brilliance of having this character who's like. He's in a wheelchair. And, you know, this is what we've talked about with Lang. I mean, there's so many elements of him that I feel like uh, Kubrick pulled from the doctor in Metropolis and from, uh, you know, these different characters that we had seen in some of the Lang films. Oh, Spies. What's his name in Spies? Uh, yeah, right, yeah. right. Um, and and how he, you know, just this this glove that almost has a life of its own and tries to strangle him and is always, you know, doing the Heil Hitler salute. It's, I mean, it's, it just doesn't make any sense that these people have him here as their advisor. It's so <laughs> funny. And it just, I don't know, there's something really strangely appealing about it. And his whole conversation about the end, about uh, having, you know, I don't know, 16 women for every man, and they all, of course, are going to have to be sexually appealing. And <laughs> it's just like, Mind Fuhrer, I can walk. Yeah, right. The the most perfect uh, way to end this film right before the nuclear annihilation. <laughs> the the funniest thing because I we've we talked about this leading up to this film and all of the uh, all of the things that Kubrick clearly brought into Strangely borrowed from Fritz Lang is over the last many weeks we've been talking about Fritz Lang. This is the thing that I found funniest about that whole conversation, that whole line of inquiry is that in fact that black glove, as it turns out, was Kubrick's. Because he apparently had a crazy fear of the bright set lights actually burning his skin. So he was the one who wore those gloves. He didn't actually write those gloves into as a part of the character. Which is funny because it turns out he wasn't borrowing from Fritz Lang for his characters. He was borrowing them for himself. That's <laughs> so funny. <laughs> well, I will say, in his defense, set lights are really hot. Yes, oh, that's <laughs> Somebody true. who has burned himself on them. Uh, okay, how about um, uh, how about George C. Scott, General Buck Turgidson? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Mm, yep. More with the names. There it right? is, Turgid the Bombast. He is the, the uh, jingoist uh, uh, commander who is sitting around the uh, war room table. He is uh, uh, strongly advocating for a first strike offense. And I believe that they modeled him a little bit after General Curtis LeMay. You know, just this whole idea of this general who is so excited about what you can do with these bombs and just how good his team is and stuff that it's almost like they don't completely pay attention to the, to the realities of what it actually means in the end. And I just love that about him. He's so funny. And I think that the, my favorite stuff is his, uh, you know, concern that the president is going to let the Russian ambassador into the war room. He'll see the big board. <laughs> the big board. <laughs> it's like he's a child on a playground. He is. And that's what I love about him. I mean, he even takes a call from his girlfriend while he's talking to the president and he has this whole conversation about, no, I love you, baby. You know, it's just, it's, it's so like, inappropriate and it seems so perfect for that kind of like that youthful person who just doesn't you know is it's all id yeah he never <laughs> aged and and you know to watch him when he talks about how long the b-52s can fly when damaged about how oh, those big birds those big birds they fly so far uh is i, I mean I, I feel like i've had those conversations i was that guy and i was seven years old and i was talking about optimus prime 
Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? It's perfect. It is just yeah. perfect. Uh, Sterling Hayden comes out of retirement as Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper. I think it's kind of retirement in quotes. <laughs> like so many of these actors who go into retirement. Yeah. I mean, he had been working um, pretty solidly all the way up through the, the 50s into 1960. And then, uh, yeah, he came out of retirement to do this in 64. And then he worked uh, all the way until 82. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I don't know if this just rejuvenated his passion. Yeah, it's or a second, if, second wind. Yeah, right, exactly. Or if he really never intended on really retiring. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, he he takes this insane character and just goes with it. And the, the, the cigar chewing, the, the way that he delivers his lines about his precious bodily fluids and denying the women that he sleeps with of his essence – uh, you know, it's – there is nothing that he does as a joke. It is all so 100% serious and that's why it works so well. It's – you know, he does everything whole hog as if he really believes about this fluoridation and that the Russians are trying to trying to poison their bodily fluids. And it works so well. I, I don't know. I, I like it, it. I know there was this whole concept back then about like fluoridation and, and there were these, uh, these groups that actually believed these things. I think it was really interesting that Kubrick and the writers chose to kind of pull that in as kind of the, the person who essentially causes all of this to happen. Uh, we've already talked a little bit about Slim Pickens. He was fantastic riding the, um, uh, riding the weapon all the way into the doomsday landscape the the word that i heard is that he pretty much never had a sense that this was a comedy and that he was you know doing it just completely seriously um because you know he, he thought that it was kind of more serious and and uh uh yeah it just i don't know i find that really funny <laughs> i find yeah that even all the way to the last bit when he's riding the bomb yeah go slim fun seeing james earl jones his first film, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty interesting to see him popping up here, uh, and I, I, you know, I like that um, he is kind of got this um, this kind of role that kind of questions uh, <laughs> whether they should do this. He's the voice of reason. Yeah, he's the one who's like, "Are you sure this isn't just a test?" Which is nice. I mean, it's it's a bit part. Uh, yeah. It's but and obviously in retrospect, it's great being able to see where uh, Jones goes from here because his part is is relatively otherwise forgettable. But it's it's it is nice to see him popping up in there. Keenan Wynn plays Colonel Bat Guano again with the names <laughs> Bat Guano. <laughs> He's I don't, so I, I don't even know what to say about that name. <laughs> Oh, it's so funny. It is just so stinking funny. It's, yeah. it's a funny bit part for him. He was, he's been working since the, uh, you know, since the early forties. Uh, and yet this film, it's not a, it's not a huge part for him, um, by 1964. Uh, but really funny, dense, but loyal. He's one of those guys that uh, it's like, I know I've seen him in stuff. I mean, looking through his credits, even just TV shows I was watching in the 80s, like Manimal, which <laughs> was a show I loved. Yes. Fall Guy, Hardcastle, and McCormick. He was also in The Return of the Man from Uncle, um, The Love Boat. He was in the movie The Last Unicorn, The Greatest American Hero, Fantasy Island, like all things that I was watching. So inevitably, I saw him in some of these things. Um, but looking back in his early career, oh, he was in Piranha. How funny. Yeah. Looking back earlier in his career, it's like, what is it uh, in his career that is kind of where I know him from? And I just, I don't know. I'm trying to pinpoint it. 
Where do you know him from? Well, I, you know, he is that uh, he's that face because he was in so many shows, particularly through the '80s that I was watching. Right, you already mentioned the Love Boat, but like Saint Elsewhere and Taxi and Quincy, and you mentioned Manimal, but Hardcastle and McCormick. Are, McCormick, are you kidding me? I loved that show. He was that guy through the, this period where I was always in front of the TV. That that was the face. And and so I, I absolutely recognized him immediately. I don't remember him from any particular like giant movie role. No, I don't either. But the fall guy. Right. You know? So yeah, it, it was he is just he was ever present. Two hundred and seventy eight credits, most of them uh were television. Yeah, and he pops up like in Once Upon a Time in the West, but again, it's kind of a bit part. I think it probably was mostly uh, the stuff in the TV stuff in the 80s that I recognize him from. He was in Black Moon Rising, uh, written by John Carpenter, uh, starring Tommy Lee Jones, Linda Hamilton, and Robert Vaughn. There you go, Linda Hamilton. I love it. All right. Uh, And let's see, we had Tracy Reed as Miss Scott, the only woman in the film. Not only does she play the woman who is uh, with uh, Turgidson, she also is uh, acted as the uh, model for the Playboy centerfold uh, that we see uh, um, Kong looking at in the plane. She is that model. And uh, she was actually Carol Reed's niece. She has this, uh, this, this funny bit. She's talking about how she got the job. She says, Stanley said, your body isn't too bad, so you have the job. Yeah, he's a, it's a it's a bikini role, so I'm going to have to see you in a yeah, bikini. <laughs> right, right. Peter Bull pres- plays the Russian ambassador Alexei de Sadesky. His stuff in this film, I just love so much. Um, he actually was in the African Queen. He's the captain of the other boat. Oh, and, wow! And, and talking about um, uh, the the Great Escape, which we just talked about, he is in Tom Jones. <laughs> yep, the movie that. <laughs> That one that best picture so, that year that we were talking about. So, so. terrible. Yeah. That's that really funny. funny. He also has quite a few credits. He's worked up through 1983. Well, I love that he ended up in Yellowbeard as yeah. Queen Anne. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was terrific. Uh, and that, that really wraps up the major uh, major cast members that, that were terrifically exciting in this film and funny. Uh, what about getting it made? Let's talk about Failsafe. Yeah, so uh, so Sidney Lumet was making a little movie called Failsafe right around the same time, and Failsafe, it is it's another uh, kind of movie about the, the you know nuclear uh, uh, possibilities of a nuclear war, and uh, it's it is uh, yeah American planes are sent to deliver a nuclear attack on Moscow, but it's a mistake due to an electrical malfunction. Can an all-out war be averted? Uh, Lumet was directing this film. And um, it was it was just one of those things where it's just like I mean it's based on a book. Kubrick felt you know this is way too similar to um, to my uh, film. He sued him. He sued the production because he felt that um, that they were doing it purposefully because uh, trying to kind of ride the coattails and uh, also just to kind of slow it down. And and he succeeded. He ended up uh, pushing the release date for sale fate safe. Fail safe back, I think almost a full year after uh, after his film was released, or maybe not a full year, but like at least at least toward much later in the year, so that it uh, it didn't affect his release date because I think they were both initially pushing to release the end of sixty three, and uh, yeah, they uh, his ended up releasing early sixty four, and theirs released I think toward the end of sixty four. 
And it didn't do that well. It didn't end up being the big hit that everybody was hoping. And I don't know how much the lawsuit had to do with that. I think Kubrick probably uh, says it's all because of him. Yeah. Would this have been, would that have been the film we're talking about? I doubt it because it wasn't very funny. No. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's listed as a drama thriller. Yeah. Totally different. The impact of Kennedy's assassin, assassination uh, were pretty powerful on this film. I believe uh, that this actually, that it happened right when the film was due to, to premiere. It was scheduled to premiere November 22nd. Yeah. Uh, 63. And yeah, they had to kind of push the whole thing back because of the assassination and, um, you know, it's the end of the year, it's the awards and all that. They were like, well, uh, when should we release it? It ended up not getting released in 63. It was pushed to January 64, uh, much to the chagrin of the people involved. But, you know, it was, it was one of those things. It's like, this is a film about a president who has to make a decision about, uh, you know, if he's going to start a nuclear war or not. And Kennedy just was killed and he went through this whole thing with Cuba. And, you know, is it appropriate to release this so close to his death? So they really had to kind of, you know, deliberate on that. And they had to change a line in the film. There's a line when Kong, he's going through the, uh, the provisions for his crew as far as what they, what they got in their little war packs. And he's kind of reading and he's like, heck, a fella could have a pretty good time in, Ve- in Vegas with this stuff. Uh, originally it was Dallas and they had to have, uh, Slim come back in and actually dub that line. Yeah, you can see it, it once you yep. once you know it's Dallas, you can see it pretty clearly. Right, exactly. Yeah, the cinematography is uh, Gilbert Taylor. I like the look of the film. I love the look of the war room. I think the uh, the darkness in there looks great, and also I think that the film has kind of a newsreel feel overall, which I think works really nicely. Um, weirdly, and you know, I mean, Kubrick has never been a fan of like real widescreen stuff. Weirdly, the the new um, the latest Blu-ray is released just 16 by 9, but uh, Kubrick released it. I think it's, it's, it's actually one of those weird films where they, it's, it's, it, the aspect ratio actually changes during the course of the film. I remember back in my Laserdisc days, um, the aspect ratio would go from 1.33 to 1 to 1.85 to 1, um, over the course of the film, depending on what was happening. And um, I can't remember which scenes, but I know Criterion is actually releasing a, a new Blu-ray version of it soon. And I'm assuming they are going to actually release it in the proper aspect ratio as opposed to just the 16 by 9 chopping stuff off. I also watched the just 16 by 9 straight up. Where did it change? Do you know? I, I think it's the War Room. I want to say all the, the all the 1.33 to 1 is all the War Room stuff. Um, I, I think... And I don't know why Kubrick um, chose to do that. Uh, I don't know if it was, you know, something having to do with the film stock was cheaper or what. But, you know, Kubrick was never a fan of anything really wide. He always liked his stuff, you know, relatively, relatively narrow. Uh, the uh, Generally, it is it is just lovely. The, the uh, uh, particular, some of the stories about getting the thing shot, uh, you know, the second unit shot all the, the plates for the rear projection of the B-52 over the Arctic Circle and uh, apparently didn't know that there's a base up there and so that the U.S. would launch their fighter jets to actually escort them to the uh, icy surface because they thought they were spies. Right. 
given the movie they were making, I find that ironic. So funny. Uh, so just little things, but the uh, but they end up being gorgeous plates, and actually the the projection sort of composite actually looks really good. I like it. I think it's a lot of fun. Even even when the bomb, uh, the whole bomb drop, and, and as he kind of plummets to the ground. The way that that kind of, uh, he zooms in on that ground behind him, I think it always looks kind of just like, you know, he's going to hit a map on the wall. But at the same time, I think it still is pretty effective. I do too. I, you know, they ended up doing a, it was, a, that was just a, a crane um, shot. They're just backing away from him and then optically reducing him in, in the frame. Um, and, and it's still at, you know, it's, it's a funny thing because it's kind of a cheap solution to a, a complex problem just in terms of physics it was a giant bomb right it was like 50 feet long and so to make it move was challenging but it ends up creating this composite of the crane coming back and the rear project and the projection behind him ends up creating some of the most iconic uh, promotional material in film history right him riding that bomb is legendary and that uh, that shot almost didn't happen because Kubrick was like, well, we have to, you know, we want to see the bomb drop. And they had not designed the set to do that. <laughs> they actually, he, they had two days to figure out a solution. And so that was the solution they came up with. And I think it ended up working. And it's it's funny how that's the sort of, it's, it's like, you know, the shark in Jaws, how it was broken so that you don't see it very often, but it ended up making it the film better. Yeah, right. Same thing here, because they had to kind of do it the way that they did it, they ended up creating something that ended up being kind of the iconic moment for the film. Let's talk about production design, Ken Adams and Peter Merton, uh, art direction. Ken Adams, uh, yeah. anybody who uh, knows his work uh, must be familiar with the James Bond franchise because he he has uh, kind of a knack for really big sets and uh, whether it's you know the the evil lair in the volcano or the war room, I mean uh, he really knows what he's doing in creating these these massive sets that are just so fascinating to look at. I love the war room set here. It's just so much uh, so so fun. It's such an interesting idea. Um, you know, it took 150 tradesmen to build it. It was 130 feet wide by 100 feet long by 35 feet high. The big board took 10 miles of electric cable to light it. <laughs> it's, it's insane. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and it's just iconic. I mean, he created a totally iconic room for this film. The uh, the table itself was 22 feet in diameter, and the, he had it covered in green felt because apparently Kubrick wanted the actors to feel like they were at a, a giant poker game, political poker game, uh, which, you know, apparently um, Adams and Merton said, you know, it's you're not going to be able to see. There, there's nothing else. There's no other symbols that are going to make it look like it's a poker game. It's just going to be so that's OK. I just want yes. it to feel that way. Right, it's black and white. You're yeah. not going to be able to tell. It's yeah, green, unless but. you unless you have poker, unless you have playing cards on a green felt table, you can't. You don't think of it as a green felt table, but he wanted it to be that way. So it was a giant twenty foot, two foot diameter table, covered in felt, uh, to make that war room. The uh, the B fifty two set is one that I find really interesting. That was made. They they had no help from the U S military, and so um, Adams and and Merton they had a book cover, the cover of a book which had a, a photo of a B-52 pilot sitting in the cockpit. And so they had about 
uh, a half side of the of the cockpit. The rest is entirely manufactured of that B-52. And word is uh, they brought the Air Force, members of the Air Force, in to see an early screening of the film. And uh, that caused quite a commotion because apparently the rest of the B-52 was uh, almost perfect. That they That's thought right. they had to be getting uh, information from inside the military. That's what I heard. I thought it was so interesting that uh, they they made it so perfect. I mean, it almost sounded like Kubrick and Adams were going to be arrested yes. because uh, you know the military was acting like they were giving out trade secrets from it, which is uh, I I guess it speaks highly of Adams' uh, design abilities. Uh, hair and makeup: Stuart Freeborn makeup, Barbara Ritchie hair. The only hair that really stands out to me is Strangelove himself. He looks like Eraserhead. Well, I wrote those down because specifically when an actor is playing multiple roles, there are always those little bits and pieces that they have to kind of help them differentiate. And, I, and, and the actor has to inhabit them well, but it also takes a good hair makeup department to really do that. And I thought Freeborn and Richie did a great job with the kind of the balding cap for uh, sellers when he's muffling of the, the little bit of extra nose and the teeth when he's playing uh mandrake and then of course the the kind of the, the bigger hair when he's playing uh, uh strange love i thought they did a great job and i think that between them paired with sellers um that trio was able to really work well to kind of create a uh three completely unique characters um uh, speaking of crazy effects uh did you write this down just because of you wanted to say Vivers and ouija <laughs> <laughs> I I think that's really funny. I hadn't <laughs> planned on saying Beavers and Ouija, but why wouldn't you now why that uh, you? now that it's been said? <laughs> that's that'd be Wally Beavers and Arthur Ouija Felig behind the effects. That's Ouija the photographer. Yes, um, that I thought was uh, interesting that they actually brought him on uh, onto this as an advisor for the effects, uh, kind of an uncredited advisor. Um, uh, sellers actually. Uh, used Ouija's speaking pattern and his accent as a little bit of the influence for Dr. Strangelove's character. Because if you hear Ouija speak, it really kind of sounds like Strangelove. And you know, this was another one uh, that we, we didn't talk about the the um, the uh, what Strangelove was was really based on. And and I think I was one going into this film thinking, oh, Strangelove was based on Kissinger. Um, I, I, for years I've thought that, I don't know, I, apparently that's a common thing and I fell for it, but it was actually, uh, Werner von Braun, uh, Hermann Kahn and John von Neumann, who are all, um, uh, military scientists for the German military science, scientists behind, you know, World War II and then Ouija's voice, right. um, kind of an amalgam character. Title design. We'd already, you already mentioned Pablo Ferro, uh, and the fantastic titles, yeah, I think it was smart. Uh, he and Kubrick were talking about the way to design the titles. They loved this whole idea of these planes uh, basically having sex in the air. But he was having he was struggling trying to figure out where to place the titles because it kept distracting your eye from the 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 act of love happening in midair, and then having to look over to read titles. And so he came up with this whole idea of doing these really pencil thin lettering of the big and small words uh, right over the the image. And uh, I, I think that was really a fascinating way to go. And it's just, it is kind of iconic. But yeah, Pharaoh is just one of those guys. I mean, geez, he worked on uh, Thomas Crown Affair with kind of the split screen beginning. Um, he's worked on everything from um, 
Beetlejuice to uh, to live and die in L.A. Um, Stop making sense. Uh, Adam's family, Men in Black. I mean, he's still around. He's still busy doing stuff. He did a lot of stuff with Hal Ashby. In fact, even being there, um, you know, he kind of uh, helped uh, in that film. So a really interesting guy who's just he he has a great eye for this sort of thing. Did you find the typo? I I I I know I've seen it before, uh, before it was uh, pointed out to me in the little making of. But I, I know I had yeah. remembered seeing it there. I had never seen it. I had never seen. It. I never noticed it, and now I feel like a dummy. It's not based on the book. It would of course be based on the book, right? right. And he forgot a D. Yep. Funny. Um, I, I can't believe it, but you actually have an IMFDB for this one, <laughs> right? I did not see this coming. Well, this is, of I course, mean, the Internet Movie Firearms database. You gotta love the uh, the big uh, the big guns. That uh, I mean, <laughs> feels it so inappropriate talking about it now. But uh, oh, yeah, it's awful. Yeah. There's the big Browning that um, that um, uh, Ripper is using that he hides in his golf bag apparently that <laughs> that he pulls out to uh, use and just kind of hold as he's as he's mowing down all these these invaders. It's just so silly. I mean, that was really the only reason I put it on there, because I thought that was funny to point that one out. I think it's funny enough to add to the notes. The music is interesting in this film. Um, Laurie Johnson does the music. And, I, you know, I'd have to really kind of listen through again to pinpoint anything that, that isn't part of when Johnny comes marching home. Because uh, that seems to be the vast majority of the music that she did, is just taking that tune and kind of rejiggering it over and over um, and, and more intensely for the uh, every time we cut to the B-52 as they're on their run to drop their bomb. I think so. There was, you know, there were the other, um, like, pop songs of the time. Right. Uh, we'll, we'll Meet Again. and um, But in terms of the score and, and, and some of the, like, symphonic sexy time music. Which I think is Try a Little Tenderness is what I heard. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. I get it now. Uh, you know how... how uh, PR companies try to come up with creative ways to get tickets sold. Well, the, for this one, they came up with the idea to to give out theater pocket uh, radioactivity uh, calculators. Those these, <laughs> the, those were the ones that Doctor Strangelove pulls out to determine like how long the the fallout is going to be to determine how when they'll be able to come back up. They yeah. gave those to theaters to give out as promos and at contests and all that sort of thing. And I think that's hilarious. <laughs> That's awesome. Here, have a pocket radioactivity calculator. <laughs> Bosley Crother. He was the the uh, the film critic for the New York Times, I believe. Um, uh, he he was a uh, one of those people who this film came out and uh, he he just ripped it. He totally didn't get it. He thought that this film was uh, just a terrible thing to release and disrespectful and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then he saw it again, like, I, I don't know, I think it was one of those movies that kind of, you know, people, it, it, you know, like I said at the beginning, they didn't necessarily get it right away. It took a little time. He ended up doing a re-review of it, um, and uh, he ended up liking it. He ended up uh, kind of praising it for what Kubrick was doing here. And I think that's uh, pretty interesting for a film critic to actually kind of make a complete turn like that. I have to read his opening paragraph of his initial review. May I? Do it. 
Stanley Kubrick's new film called Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Wearing and Love the Bomb, is beyond any question the most shattering, sick joke I've ever come across. And I say that with full recollection of some of the grim ones I've heard from Mort Saul, some of the cartoons I've seen by Charles Adams, and some of the stuff I've read in Mad Magazine. Yep. <laughs> those are simpler times, am I right? Those were, those were, yes. This indeed. is such a disgusting movie because it pales in comparison to Mad Magazine. Oh, dear. Too how did do? How did it do for awards? This is a great film. It should have won all the awards, right? It should have. Boy, I wish it did. Um, this was one of those films that I, you know, I, I, I'm wondering if, I mean, this was a January release, which typically is kind of the dumping ground, but because of the uh, assassination of Kennedy at the end of uh, 63, I'm wondering if it kind of, you know, gave people a little more uh, leeway as far as knowing why things got pushed to 64. But this film did get nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best uh, Adapted Screenplay, and Best Lead Actor, uh, Peter Sellers. Unfortunately, it didn't win anything. The winners that year were My Fair Lady, um, which is not one of my favorite films, won Best Picture, um, Best Director for George Cukor, and Best Actor for Rex Harrison, and Beckett by Edward Onholt won Best Adapted Screenplay. So yeah, it lost all of its uh, awards, but it did receive a number of other awards. It won another 15 awards, or 15 wins, and had four more nominations. So, you know, I, it's one of those films that I think some people got it, some people yeah. didn't. Like the BAFTAs, they were all over it. Well, you know, the British, they they get sellers. <laughs> yes, they do. Yes, they do. Uh, any sense of a, a remake reboot? When are we going to get to see this again? Kubrick two or uh, Strange yeah, Love two? Strange Love two. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I think it's interesting that in '95 Kubrick actually brought in Terry Southern to script a sequel titled "Son of Strange Love," and he apparently <laughs> had Terry Gilliam in mind to direct. Uh, they never finished the script. Uh, they started laying out the index cards of the basic story structure, uh, but then Terry Southern died uh, later that year. And, um, but yeah, I guess the idea was largely going to be set in underground bunkers where Dr. Strangelove had taken refuge with a group of women. <laughs> uh, be that curious. sounds like a terrible movie. <laughs> it does. It really probably should never have been made. I'm surprised that Kubrick even uh, came up with it. But <laughs> yeah, awful. G- Gilliam actually said, you know, he, he had been told about all this after Kubrick died. And he's just like, I never knew about it until after he died, but I would l- have loved to. So. Uh, I mean, you know, I guess with Kubrick's blessing, I would be happy to go direct it too, <laughs> even if it was going to be bad, just to say, hey, Kubrick told me to. Kubrick told me to. Yeah. <laughs> that's actually that's one of the things my kids say when they get in trouble. <laughs> Dad, Kubrick told me to. Uh, OPE. I love that the Coen brothers kind of throw that in every so now and then again. Not too often. I definitely remember it in Raising Arizona, uh, but it's just one of those weird little references that they have. And it's yeah. to this film. How did it do on the numbers? If it didn't win the awards, at least tell me it made back its money. Uh, yeah, it was released, like I said, January 29th, 1964. Um, it cost about $1.8 million to make. Um, so, you know, it is a modest budget. That was about adjusted about $13.5 million. Um, It ended up making domestically about $9.5 million. I couldn't find any... Um, any international figures uh but yeah so that would be about an adjusted uh total gross of about 70.8 million um so 
you know, it it made its money back. This film ended up making about six hundred ten thousand dollars per finished minute adjusted. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, not too bad. It's number ninety on our list. Listed, they paid for the table. <laughs> right. Uh, I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com and uh, ser- slash the next reel and then search for Dr. Strangelove. Uh, you'll see it in our uh, most recent uh, uh, rankings there if you're keeping up with the show. And uh, add it to your own list. And let's see. Let's, let's compare numbers. Let's compare digits. Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Wearing the Bomb and Love the Bomb versus... First up, the O Brother block. O Brother, where art thou? I'm going to tell you, Pete. This is a tough one for me. It's not tough in any way, shape, or form for me. I watched this film, and I'm really conflicted right now because I'm starting to feel like, do I have a new favorite movie? I don't know. It's possible. It's possible. (laughs) I haven't committed that to myself yet, but it is possible. Let's just see how it plays out. It's It's, Dr. Strangelove. It's Strangelove. It's Strangelove. All right, Dr. Strangelove or The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Oh, Strangelove. Absolutely. Uh, Strangelove or Fisher King. Uh, Strangelove for me. Brilliant. Terry Gilliam, but yeah, Strangelove. Strangelove. See? Strangelove or Brazil. Wow. Right now, I I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I'm going to say Strangelove. Yeah. Yeah, I'm Strangelove. I'm really shocked at myself. I feel oh. like I'm watching a chrysalis emerge from the chrysalis. Strange love or touch of evil? Oh, uh, dear, we're we're getting right up in there, aren't we? I'm strange love. Oh, jeez. All right, I got on this train, Andy. I'm going to ride it to the end. There you are. There, yes, you are, Doctor Strange Love or Seven. Seven. I can't do it. I can't. I'm doing strange love. Here we go. Okay. One, two, two three, three. Paper. paper. Tense. <laughs> it is tense. <laughs> One, One, two, two three. Paper. paper. <laughs> One, two, three. Rock. <laughs> One, two, three. Paper. You are kidding me now. One, One two, two, three, three rock. Paper. <laughs> Did you just cheat? Did I you did. say it? I said it at the I, at the exact same time. There's okay. no cheating here. All right. Well. Thank you. That's got to be it, right? No. Strange love or Mr. Smith goes to Washington. <laughs> I'm strange love, baby. Seriously? I am strange love. Like I, I, I said, this might be my new favorite movie. <laughs> I'll just I'll just flat out tell you right now. This is number one on my my next real flick chart right now. It, it is. <laughs> it is. Oh, mind blown. I know. Okay, we gotta do it. I gotta. I gotta over over Mr. Fight. Smith. Okay. Yes. One. But he's a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> he's gone to more school than Mr. Yeah. Smith. <laughs> One, One, two, two, three, three scissors. Oh, you won. Suck it. That's a terrible thing to say. (laughs) This was like, this was really, really delicate. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. That was insensitive. (laughs) Andy, would you please suck it? (laughs) There you go. Much better.
That's it. We are at number four. Number if it were up to me, this four. would be number one. It is not this up is, to you. This is up. This is above network now for me. This is like the top of the chart. Wow, Andy. I watched wow. this like three times before before we did this show. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't stop rewatching it. I I feel like it was a it was a it, you put up a good fight. It was a principled loss in your case. And uh, I appreciate it. I also love this film. Number four ain't that bad. It, we have a film that broke the top five, Andy, and that's hard to come by. It is. It really is. All right. Celebrate the little things. I will. And I not will. your personal stunning loss. Uh, <laughs> I'll cry myself to sleep, but I'll be okay tomorrow. I'm going to go ahead and assume that this is a five-star film on Letterboxd. This is a six-star film. Right? <laughs> I was going to say, have you written a strongly worded letter about the number of stars? That's right. No, it yes. It's also a five-star yep. film for me. Perfect, perfect, yeah. Now, where do we go from here? Do you have any idea what we're doing here from our vacation? Well, believe it or not, vacation must come to an end. Oh, curse you. I know. I am sorry. We're going to be entering a fun little series. I, I, it should be interesting. It's definitely going to be covering a wide variety of films. This is going to be a disease films series. We're, we have uh, eight eight films that we're going to be talking about. Two full months of disease. This and is good. It's going to be a wide variety. We're starting off with The Omega Man, uh, which should be an interesting <laughs> one to kick it off with. A little a dose of Charlton Heston 70s craziness. Yeah. Uh, then we've got The Andromeda Strain, The Crazies, Outbreak, Serenity, Children of Men, Blindness, Ending with Contagion. I, I cannot tell you the number of people who have asked me why we don't have Serenity on our list. So I'm telling you people, August 5th, Serenity joins the list. I'm excited about that. Oh, yeah. It's going to be good. Yeah, very excited about that. This is awesome. It is a great series. I Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. I think I love disease stories second only to my love of zombie stories. 
really. I mean, it's I, and I recognize <laughs> they're, really they're all they're of, very similar. Yeah, they're, they're one of the same, similar. really. <laughs> but but when you look at movies like you know, Outbreak is definitely. I mean, people don't they don't get crazy. They just melt from the inside out, right? I mean, it's yeah. just a different kind of a vibe. Yes, yes. Uh, but uh, but in this case, they're oh, right up there. I I forgive an awful lot on these stories. I really do. That's a shame. It makes me a, a, a weak person. <laughs> well, it's going to be a fun series to talk about. So it sure I'm is. Definitely looking forward to it. So yeah, that's uh, that's the next thing that we'll be uh, kicking off right as soon as vacation is over. Looking forward to it. Between now and then, I I don't even need to tell you because I've spent the last two weeks in bed. Well, I've been to one World Fair picnic and rodeo, and that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard to come over a set of earphones. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. I have a one star from Susan who watched this movie just a few months ago, February 2016. I don't know. Maybe we've spent the last uh, uh, two hours laughing too hard, but it's sadly that's how this hits me. <laughs> she says, too real. Not for the timid or, th- or those worried about the lives of their descendants. Wow. I know. Well, heavy, that's a right? review straight out of like 1964. I had no idea this was a comedy. I'm terrified. <laughs> right. I'm going to go hide <laughs> under my desk and duck and cover. The Hammer and Sickle Falls. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, that is yeah. brilliant. Just Grim. brilliant. Okay. Well, I also have a one star. Worst movie of the 1960s, says Dan C. There have been some sadly bad movies out of the 1960s. I'm not sure this that's good to say. No, I mean, you know, Tom Jones, maybe. <laughs> I feel so... Right? I, I shouldn't say that. It's been so long since I've seen Tom Jones. Oh, I, it's, it's like, terrible. I need to rent it again just to relive its uh You don't. Its judge blindly. <laughs> well, I, I already did, so... Uh, Dan says, I didn't see it when it came out, but was aware of the hoopla. Seeing it 50 years later, it is one of the worst movies ever made. Peter Sellers didn't fit in at all in any of his roles. The special effect, man riding the bomb, was ludicrous, as though filmed by a three-year-old. And the storyline was as scientifically bogus as any movie could be. Yes, I know it was supposed to be a comedy, but it turned out to be an absurd, unfunny fantasy. I wonder if the tiresome George C. Scott was ever embarrassed by his ridiculous role. I think he was. He was tricked by Kubrick into playing the role over the top. I like how he tries to kind of make, like, justify his dumb review here by throwing in some facts. Yes, right. Well, that was good. And and it, right after he insulted the cinematographer, accusing him of being a three-year-old. Yes. That's right. a shame. Thanks, Amazon. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to learn more about membership, please head over to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can see how you can join and support the show. Thanks, everybody. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. 
If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. In Season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Siam based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and A Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs> 